I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, joined by Dr. Andreas Krieg, an associate professor in the School of Security Studies at King's College London and author of the book Subversion. The Strategic Weaponization of Narratives. We'll be talking about Israel's security culture and its feelings, as well as Israeli information warfare and Dr. Krieg's attendance of a workshop, I suppose, on Hasbara. I don't know what to make of some of the things that are being called Hasbara right now, or for that matter, what's being called Hamas propaganda. There's a lot of fog of war going on, so I'm almost just brain-melted by everything coming out. It's, it's hard to tell what's real, what's not real. So with that in mind, I think you'll find this conversation, at the very least, incredibly engaging. Dr. Krieg and I spoke for a little over 30 minutes, and I hope you find the discussion useful. So let's get right to it with Dr. Andreas Krieg. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very happy to be speaking with, Dr. Andreas Craig. Senior Lecturer at the School of Security Studies at King's College London, also a fellow at the Institute of Middle Eastern Studies, and author of the book, Subversion, the Strategic Weaponization of Narratives. How are you doing? Very good. Thanks for having me. So the reason I wanted to have you on, uh, Andreas, is uh, you had some commentary I've seen on 
the issue of Israel's strategic culture and uh, perhaps what could be called its failings. Maybe you could mm. uh, let my listeners know what you mean by that. It's strategic culture and it's a potential downfall. Right. Uh, a strategic culture is basically the sort of behaviors, the norms that you uh, use to the uh, the kind of past behaviors, your you know, the way you relate to your uh, to your history and legacy and how you all mix this together to kind of inform your strategic decision making as a country or as a military. Um, and what I mean by that is Israel is a country that has that was born under fire and has still not really left this behind in terms of thinking that they're still under threat. It's it's a it's a strategic culture that's built around victimhood, the idea that they're you know that they're constantly under stress, under fire, under siege by neighboring countries or non-state actors. The fact that everything, every problem they see is is basically described through the lens of security and defined through the lens of security rather than, um, you know, potentially looking at other non-security related ways of of solving issues. Um, and also the, the main, main instrument of power that they're using, you know, if you usually look at statecraft, you, you know, you have the diplom di diplomatic lever, military lever, an economic lever, information lever. You have different levers to kind of advance the interests of a state. The, the one lever that Israel has always used and con constantly uses and still uses is the military. Um, and I always think that if you look at the problems that Israel is facing, the number one problem is, um, you know, is is and remains the issue of a lack of statehood in Palestine, which is something that you will not solve uh, through military means, but is something that you will solve through uh, through diplomatic means around the negotiation table. And the problem here is that, again, Israel cannot see and hasn't used any non-military means to address the issue. Every time they've seen, you know, rockets coming from Gaza or there's been insurgencies in the West Bank, the way that they deal with it, instead of addressing the root cause of it, which is a political one, they're using the military to kind of uh, uh, to kind of squash it. And and this is something they've been doing for for decades. Obviously, in the early years of Israel, and again, that's why I'm talking about strategic culture. Israel, you know, founded in 1948. Um, under you know under pressure of a, of of an of arab neighbors wanting to eradicate the country so there's this kind of again and then obviously on the basis of the holocaust and 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 6 million jews being being slaughtered in, in an industrial complex all that created a victimhood and then 1948 finally they got the jewish state and obviously through you know, all kinds of controversial means at times with people being palestinians being being expelled but then you had the arabs coming in and uh, Arab countries trying to obviously uh, defend those Arabs, the Palestinians who were living in these territories. And that war kind of, again, create that victimhood of we're, you know, we're the David against the Goliath of all these different Arab countries. And um, that kind of happened in 1948. That happened again in 1967 when, when Israel had to defend itself uh, against the intent of, you know, Jordan, Egypt, Syria to, to, to attack Israel. Uh, and it happened again in 1973 when the Egyptians and the Syrians attacked. And again, so that has built this idea that, you know, Israel is that small little sp space, a tiny Goliath, as uh, the tiny David having to fight against the Goliath. But obviously the, the tables have turned since. Israel has since 1967 been occupying power. They've been a, a, a country that has been in charge of a civilian population that they entirely control. Um, they've been in charge of occupation in Lebanon since in, in the, in, between 1982 and 2000, again, where they've been a, a very heavily um, technologized uh, and, and strong military occupying civilians. Um, and so the tables have turned since the 1980s where Israel is no longer the David but actually, in fact, they're the Goliaths because they're now acting not against other Arab states, but they're acting against non-state actors such as Hamas, Hezbollah, and so on. If we could, could we talk a little bit about 
what Hamas is. And I, I don't mean its history and its mm. its origins in uh, the Muslim Brotherhood ideology, but rather mm. this debate over is Hamas an idea? Is it the de facto government of Gaza? Is it part of the Palestinian resistance? I, there's a lot of mm. arguments about what Hamas is. How would you define Hamas? Um, so Hamas is, is all these different things that you just outlined, unfortunately, and that makes it so difficult to kind of have a unitary, uh, singular or unilateral approach to it. And and the, the flaw, the basic flaw that Israel has in its strategy towards Hamas and has had since, you know, the second intifada is that they're looking at it entirely only as that terrorist organization. Certainly Hamas has committed terrorism. They are, you know, there's a large part of what they do is terrorism. So they are a terrorist organization. Um, they're also part of a social political actor. So in Gaza, they're also governing territory. Um, they've always seen themselves as part of the resistance, which is a you know controversial topic. Is it, is it legitimate or not? Um, but they're certainly also a, an insurgency group. And so they're not just a terrorist organization. Um, but they're also, most importantly, a network. And I would define them as a network of different entities that are somewhat um, decentralized or polycentric in many ways, where you have uh, political leaders who live in, 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 in exile, some in Qatar, some in Turkey, some in Lebanon, where you have have a, a political leadership on the ground in Gaza. You have a military wing and different military wings that are not necessarily directly attached to the political leadership. So oftentimes what you have with these kind of networked actors is you don't know, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Um, so very complex sort of actor. Um, they're a charity organization. They do education. They are, they're very similar to Hezbollah in that respect, in, in terms of not being a unitary actor. They're, they're being they're being all of these issues together, an insurgency group, a terrorist organization. Um, they're a, a resistance movement. And they're most importantly, they're an idea. So when we talk about resistance and when we talk about insurgency, insurgency is insurgencies are built around a grievance and the idea of um, you know, fighting a just cause to defend yourself, defending your interests and your values, uh, and that is an, an is a cognitive struggle. And to fight a cognitive struggle with by military means is not something that you, that has ever succeeded. So, in terms of insurgency, you need to address the root cause of it. You can't do counterterrorism, as in what Israel is doing right now, trying to kill every single uh, Hamas fighter in trying to eradicate what essentially is a cognitive uh, issue, a cognitive threat, which is an idea and the idea of resistance. Um, is something that is rooted in the root cause of that conflict and the fact that Palestinians don't have statehood. So if you don't address this, you're never going to get rid of Hamas. I guess that leads me to the question of, was there another way that Israel could have could have responded to the events of October 7th? Um, and even with the response they've had so far, it seems like there's been strategic ambiguity where the hmm. mission is to eradicate Hamas, but that's not really a very defined mission. Yeah. No, you're right. Uh, st strategic uh, ambiguity has been key for the Israelis because they also, also want to make sure that the that Iran's axis of resistance, um, as they call it, you know, Hezbollah and all these other Shia militias, are not really knowing what's going on because they, they are waiting to respond to what Israel is doing. So they're kind of keep, keeping everything in that gray zone. Um, but how could have Israel? How could Israel have responded differently? Uh, first of all, I think Israel has a right to defend itself in that respect. Hamas has, you know, committed an atrocious attack on uh, Israeli civilians. Um, against, you know, no other country would accept that. Uh, the problem with this, though, is that the Israeli government has 
very deliberately allowed Hamas to grow into what they are today. So if you, you know, it's a bit like if you put a, a caged animal in, it, it, or you put an animal in a cage and start poking it, eventually the animal, if it finds a, a way to get out, um, uh, it will try to get out and, and, and it will be angry. Um, and I'm not saying that Hamas are animals, but I'm just saying that, you know, just as a sort of uh, analogy. Um, but Israel would needed to do something militarily. But it, I think what is required is, first of all, Israel needs to rid itself of these radicals in its own government. If you want to fight Hamas, which is a radical organization, you need to also address the own radicals in your own government. Because only then, only if Netanyahu and the radicals are gone, are actually, you know, kind of balanced and and moderate Israelis are able to actually address the, the root cause of the problem. So you need to have a military response to it, no doubt. But this has to be accompanied by a very clear political strategy as well, by saying, A, we're going to get rid of Hamas, but we're also offering you Palestinians an alternative, uh, whether this is the, the, the Palestinian Authority or PLO or Fatah, whatever it is. Um, you need to kind of give them hope that if you remove Hamas, something else will come in its place. The problem now is Israel has no strategy, no strategic endgame. It doesn't say what it wants. They're, Israel doesn't speak with one voice. You have the intelligence community saying we want one thing. You have radicals in the Netanyahu government saying something completely different. You have Netanyahu himself in the prime minister's office saying something else. And you've got the IDF as the military, which is only supposed to implement strategy rather than making strategy, right? They're just the, a way of a tool of a political strategy. Uh, and they're they, they're basically focusing on eradicating the infrastructure on the ground. And that's probably the only element that is sort, thought through is saying, OK, we're going to eradicate Hamas's infrastructure. But as I said, if if the, the problem is a cognitive one, if it's an idea of resistance, you're not going to eradicate it by military means. So it's now up to the political leadership in Israel to come up with something as an alternative. And obviously, as you are killing, and I mean, the killing that happened since the 7th of October on the Palestinian side, more than 11,000 people killed uh, and civilians killed by vast majority, civilians, women, children killed. That will create uh, another root cause for radicalization and root cause for mobilization for resistance, which is fairly, you know, fairly legitimate in many ways, um, because you know, people also need to empathetically kind of put themselves into the into the minds and and into into the people who live in Gaza and and realize that these people are under immense stress um, and what they've experienced now, entire families being wiped out. This will just breed another generation of radicals who want to engage in in resistance. So even if you eradicate Hamas as an organization, as a network, which will be very difficult, you'll have something else. Call it something else. Will be another resistance movement movement that will pop up tomorrow. I think that's a very important point because if we look at someone like the Hamas commander uh, Mohammed Daif, I was looking into his mm. background. He was in a refugee camp growing up, and his family was basically annihilated by. Um, an Israeli bombardment campaign. So I think we have to understand that, you know, these kinds of campaigns uh, can end up having blowback and creating uh, more radicals and, and more terrorist activity. And this is not even a controversial thing to say. Absolutely. If you look at the biography of Daif, you, you, you see that, you know, this is a biography of someone who's been under constant fire expulsion, uh, has been surrounded by death atrocities being committed by, you know, at the time, Irgun and other uh, predecessors of the IDF in in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in what Israel calls the War of Independence in 1948. So if you go through all this, you're being expelled, you, 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 you're experiencing death around the atrocities being committed, of course, you're going to say, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm going to resist. Um, and, 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 and that's exactly what has happened. It's not a controversial thing to actually say that we need to address the root cause of that. Any sort of, uh, and you know, us, the UK, US, we've been involved in counterinsurgencies for, um, you know, for 
for decades, but definitely over the last two decades, been very heavily involved in Afghanistan and Iraq. We've been fighting insurgencies. Uh, we've developed a doctrine around it. We've developed uh, blueprints of how to do it. And every single uh, counterinsurgency manual will tell you that you need to have uh, need to address the political root cause of it. Um, Israel seems to ignore this entirely. Israel has learned absolutely nothing about insurgency. Um, and Israel has been atrocious when it comes to insurgency because, again, they have used this, this strategic culture of the iron fist. And that notion and this kind of racist notion to think that Ara the only language, and you know, I've lived in Israel, um, Israelis are saying that all the time, the only language Arabs understand is the, is, is the iron fist and that's its force and its violence. Um, that in itself is entirely flawed uh, and it's not something that actually works, not in the 21st century. It hasn't, hasn't worked 40, 50 years ago. It definitely doesn't work today. Um, and also we've moved, the world has moved on in, in the way that we are fighting insurgencies. And Israel is still fighting the same kind of insurgencies in the way that the British did in the 1950s uh, in, in, you know, in, in, in these post-colonial struggles, uh, which were, you know, is a very antiquated way of doing it. And in the end, Britain failed. Uh, and, and Israel will fail as well if it doesn't address the root cause and if it doesn't kind of op optimize its approach to insurgency fighting. And again, this root cause would be finding a essentially a political solution to the Palestinian issue uh, of statehood. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is um, how important is it for people to note the internal turmoil going on uh, within Israel right now? Because I, I'm seeing reports that Netanyahu is blaming the security establishment for the atrocities mm -hmm. of October 7th. He's saying, you know, basically that it was a conspiracy to bring him down uh, how much are, are these sort of conspiracy theories and the sort of turmoil between Netanyahu and other uh, parties within the Israeli government? How important is this to what's happening right now? Uh, very, very important. It, it's a strategic weakness in, in Israel. Um, so obviously, Israel is an extremely divided country. We've seen a, a year of protests against the Netanyahu government. Netanyahu is extremely unpopular nowadays. Most people in Israel blame him for what happened because the, the decision not to uh, really staff the border with Gaza well was a political one. It's an ideological one because some of his right wing ministers were saying we need to put more boots on the ground in the West Bank to kind of protect our, you know, our settler activity, um, which was completely unnecessary, is certainly not in Israel's interest. Um, but it's an, it was an ideological cause. The problem with Netanyahu is, is an extremely divisive character. He's someone who does what he does. He would sell his wife and his mother in order to stay in power. He has absolutely no principles. He's very he's very flexible flexible on norms flexible on the people he works with to achieve his goal and his goal is always a self interested one he's you know the the antithesis of a statesman he's a very much a politician um, and the and he's been very much involved in a war over narratives for for decades and he's quite good at this he's very eloquent um, the problem now is um, that that he has intoxicated the information environment in Israel so much. That you know, his and his, he's basically just speaking to his followers, and very similar to what we've seen, uh, you know, uh, with Trump and Trumpists in America, where he doesn't speak to whole all of America. He's speaking to a particular faction within America and using nar narratives that are divisive, polarizing, mobilizing, uh, and, and 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 Netanyahu in that way, he's a very much a populist, and that what is 
kind of quite concerning is that now he's willing to throw the intelligence services and the the military under the bus to score some political points uh, and doing that at a time when Israel is what he says in an existential conflict which I doubt which I you know very much uh, I think is exaggerated but it is still in, in mass mobilization Israel has not been in this state for 50 years in, in terms of where they are right now uh, and with mobilization uh, the threat environment um so in, in in this kind of context, Netanyahu is is doing the worst thing he can put, possibly do is dividing the front even further, and I think that will eventually undermine him. I want to talk uh, briefly here about the situation of the hostages because I've seen some Israeli voices say that you know essentially the hostages are being thrown under the bus by mm. the Netanyahu government. What do you make of that analysis? Absolutely right. Um, so, you know, if you follow the negotiations between, uh, particularly between Qatar, Israel and uh, and Hamas, but also Egypt and the US involved in it and Iran involved in it. Um, but if you look at these country-led negotiations, what you see is essentially that it's the Netanyahu government that's unwilling to make compromises. It's the Netanyahu government that's unwilling to make concessions in this. Hamas was actually fairly forthcoming a couple of weeks ago. We're willing to freeze uh, to free 50 civilian hostages in, in return for a couple of hours, talking to 24 hours, 12 hours of a ceasefire. It's not even a ceasefire, it's a humanitarian pause to get these people released. And Netanyahu said, no, we're not going to do it. And so that if you follow these negotiations, you realize that those people who negotiate on behalf of Israel are the representatives of the intelligence community, especially of uh, of the Mossad. Uh, two of the Mossad chiefs went have been to Qatar repeatedly over the last couple of weeks, speaking to intermediaries uh, in in Qatar, who then speak to to Hamas. And it seems that the intelligence community, the, the Mossad in particular, are willing to strike a deal to get the hostages out uh, and also making concessions in terms of freeing Palestinian uh, hostages or granting a fairly long uh, um, 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 ceasefire or, or humanitarian pause. It's always the government, the Israeli government, Bibi in, in particular, who said, no, we're not going to do it. You know, it's again, it's iron fist. We don't negotiate with terrorists. We're going to we're going to eradicate them. But in the cause of that action, which is very impulsive, uh, very irrational, you're basically sacrificing the lives of your hostages in in to score some again scoring some political points. Now you're in uh, the UK. Uh, I know here in the US. I think in some ways, and this is changing now with um, public opinion shifting a bit. But I feel as if there has been times where not just criticism of the Israeli government, but, all, but also even just criticism of Netanyahu has almost been treated as, um, you know, the third rail that you, you can't sort of cross that line. Mm -hmm. And I, I find it perturbing because, you know, we know from uh, Bill Clinton, Obama, and even H.W. Bush, uh, that a lot of our U.S. presidents have not had uh, great relationships mm -hmm. uh, with Netanyahu. And I don't see uh, criticism of Netanyahu as even necessarily being anti-Israel, uh, and yet it seems like it could still be uh, a way to pin people as being anti-Semitic. Do you think there's a fear of criticizing Netanyahu too much in some ways by people who, who are afraid of being labeled anti-Semitic? There, so Israel has created this sort of compulsive, coercive environment in the information space where people feel threatened to say anything critical of Israel because they fear they might be labeled anti-Semitic, uh, which is ridiculous because they've been using now the anti-Semitic label on, on Jewish people who are basically going against Israel. Uh, so it kind of completely undermines the whole purpose of the 
of the idea of anti-Semitism and it's been kind of led at, at, absor- at absurdum, which is, uh, you know, it's kind of unbelievable that they're going as far as that. We've seen uh, people making statements, kind of relativizing and uh, tri- trivializing uh, the Holocaust just to score some points against Hamas. Uh, and again, you know, completely undermining the, the entire literature on anti-Semitism just to score some political points, which is very, very problematic. Um, I think there's been a lot of criticism of Netanyahu. And I think Criticism of Netanyahu is not something that is in any way even anti-Israel. I think even Israel, people in Israel, uh, and I, I would not say even Israel, I would say in Israel particularly, most of the press is very, very much against Netanyahu. And you could actually say that the Israeli press in many ways is doing a better job at holding Netanyahu to account than, you know, US media and some of the other Western media who are constantly just parroting whatever Netanyahu is saying. The problem in all of this has been, over the last 17 years, has been on one hand Hamas, but on the other hand, it has been Bibi Netanyahu who let it who let it happen, who uh, deliberately backed up and 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 funded Hamas uh, in order to kind of create a counterpole to the Palestinian Authority, in order to create this kind of divide and rule policy where he could uh, where he could uh, create a pretext to to um, to push back against any sort of attempt by the Palestinians to have negotiations going or create their own state. Um, so that was all again a political move. It's and it's a move that that is really just in the interest of the few. It's not a move that was in the interest of the many in Israel. So Israeli press and Israeli civil society very much hold Netanyahu to account. I think British media is doing a very good job as well. In America, it's I think it is shifting, but there is a problem here and that goes back to the first thing I said early on is the perception among the baby boomer generation in the West of still seeing Israel as the David in that battle against Goliath. It comes out of this historic context of when these people grew up in the 60s and 70s, um, they, they would see uh, Israel has been constantly under bombardment and a pressure from Arab countries and being somewhat this kind of small space squashed uh, between you know these larger Arab countries. And it's in our generation, Generation Z in particular, where this, this no longer holds. They only know Israel as an occupying force. They only see Israel as a fairly safe country, um, wh- which is occupying civilians from a different ethnic group. Uh, and I think so in, the, in this generation, the, the perception of Israel is constantly different is, is is completely different from what it was in previous generations and will make it more palatable and acceptable to criticize Israel and most of what I see particularly uh, uh, for, from younger generations is actually not anti-semitic at all I just had a few more brief questions here uh in, in regards to your books aversion uh you mm. deal with these issues related to dis- disinformation information warfare and propaganda uh could you take us inside? Israeli information warfare efforts, because I've been seeing a lot of unusual things lately, uh, specifically uh, figures cropping up. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this figure, um, British Palestinian by the name of John Aziz, who just got published in The Atlantic, that's saying, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm pro-peace, I'm Palestinian, but he only really pushes, I would say, Israeli talking points and sort of says, oh, well, Mm -hmm. there's extremists on both sides, but hey, we should focus on voices like me, rather than reporting on things like the settler movement. Um, it's very weird. So yeah. it seems like there's a big Israeli propaganda network. I don't want to get conspiratorial about it, but no, you're not. You're, you're no, it's not real. Uh, you're, you're pointing the finger at something that fake journalists is something that have been used by the Russians in disinformation for a long time. In my book, I look particularly at Russia, the UAE and, and China. I didn't, I, I deliberately didn't focus on Israel because it would be more controversial and they would have you know, completely used lawfare against me where they can to get this book uh, delisted. And that was a conscious decision. I uh, attended a year 
long program um, of Hasbara in Israel when I was living there. And I thought it was very interesting. It was the first time I was actually introduced in how you can weaponize narratives. Um, and Israel has been the mastermind of kind of building, obviously pushing back in the information environment, trying to hold the ground in the information environment as the most important part of any operation um, and have kind of built a very extensive um, uh, machinery and, and networks across uh, the Western world in particular to push their narratives. Um, and they've done it in, in in very sophisticated ways for many years, very subtly. What we've seen over the last decade or so, you know, in parallel to the Netanyahu government being in power, we're seeing them spinning out of control, where the Hasbara machine now is no longer credible. Uh, uh, if, you know, most of the information that's being pushed out by the IDF, by the PM's office or others, um, have been doctored or are misinformation. Some of them are disinformation. We've had fake recordings of, of uh, Hamas uh, fighters, allegedly, who are speaking to one another, which were debunked as being fake. We've had um, we had um, videos from Lebanon from a from a film set that were posted by official Israeli accounts saying, "Oh, look, this is all the Palestinians." Yeah, they called it. I think they called it Pollywood. Yeah, they're calling it Pollywood. That Pollywood narrative is is not only completely dehumanizing and, and atrocious; it's it's completely wrong. It's disinformation, and they know it's disinformation. Um, it has become the, the, their campaign has been very coercive, very vicious. And mostly build around the anti-Semitism uh, narrative of saying, you know, if you criticize Israel, you, you're an anti-Semite. Um, they've been pushing what they call moderate Muslim voices. These are basically uh, people that many of them actually Muslim uh, Arab Israelis um, who've been uh, recruited to to basically speak in Arabic on behalf of Israel. We have fake journalists speaking on behalf of Israel, um, and 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 it's the disinformation which is very com which is for the first time I'm seeing it in this conflict where it's not just misinformation but deliberately doctored uh, con. Content, uh, where you had an Arab Israeli actress re uh, pretending that she was in in Shifa Hospital, saying, "Oh, there's Hamas people all around us." Turns out she's an actress. Uh, she was hired by the Israelis to film this. Nobody in the Shifa Hospital knew of her. So that's we're in like this... something straight out of the movie Wag the Dog. I mean, this is very wild. It is not wild if you've followed the Ukraine war. I mean, the Russians have been in that game for a long time, and we call them out on all of this. The problem is U.S. media is not calling them out. I mean, U.S. media just paired them. Uh, they allow these uh, spokesperson from the IDF, from the prime minister's office in Israel, spinning their narrative on live TV, and nobody's actually uh, holding them to account. If you could, you mentioned being at, I guess, at Hasbara workshop. What what was that experience like? So, you know, I was a student in university in Israel, uh, did my master's there, and they offered that for, for, for students to attend. And I thought it was extremely interesting to, you know, kind of uh, have lectures from uh, and workshops from organized by people from the foreign ministry, but a different spokespersons of, you know, how do they actually, how do they build a narrative? How can you build a narrative? How can you, how can you show one side of the story and it was mostly based on truth right it's about a good narrative is actually very much truthful and how do you spin a particular truth to make yourself look better than than the other side um and that's what most uh strategic communication does these days but what these as i'm saying this is very far away from what we're seeing now and that was uh when was that 2008 9 10 um so you know we're looking more than uh, near, yeah 15 years ago um things have changed dramatically where you have more than just one strategic communication uh, channel in israel we've got the idf you've got the prime minister's office you've got other uh, semi official voices speaking out and some of them using dehumanizing language and you have the you have even the the uh, the president herzog now being used extensively and he's appearing on 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 i mean in a very degrading manner sitting in front of a camera saying holding up the, the an Arab version of Mein Kampf and saying, look what we found in a tunnel. It's kind of pathetic. I don't think we've seen anything like that uh, from any West, certainly not from a Western democracy.
I, I think he said it was uh, they found it in a children's living room and it looked like it was yeah. in pristine condition. Yes, yes. Very, very strange. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to get into with you, and I, I know you have another interview coming up, so I, I will uh, try to keep it short. But um, what does Israel face? What does the IDF face when they advance into these tunnels? Because you, you've said that their advantage is going to be undone by its entering into low technology warfare. What do you mean by mm. that? Now, Israel has a numerical superiority, obviously, on the ground in terms of the people they've mobilized. They have a technological superiority. They have the best military tech out there anywhere in the world. I'd say in many ways, uh, some of the units are better equipped than than U.S. counterparts, U.K. counterparts. Uh, And they're usually well equipped for anti-drone warfare and so on. So they know what they're getting into. And that's on the ground. Uh, They're quite good. Even in an urban combat environment, which is extremely complex, they're still fairly good. They have great special forces to, to get the job done. The problem here is that you're fighting ghosts, like we would say, you know, we said in, in uh, when you were looking at the war in Vietnam, these people appeared and reappeared, disappeared. And the same is true for Hamas. We've seen some of their tactical uh, uh, videos that they released. They're just popping out of somewhere, firing an RPG and then kind of dropping down the tunnels and disappearing again. And we're looking at a tunnel network that's hundreds of kilometers long, very deep. And and so what I can see so far is they've gone into the, the most obvious tunnels, uh, and, and which are mostly like bunkers, which are not very deep. We haven't seen any videos of them going deep inside those tunnels. Um, So I think the real fight hasn't really begun yet. And what what Hamas was trying to do is trying to undo their technological and numerical advantage by saying, let's go downstairs, let's go deep inside some 70 meters deep tunnels, and let's have a let's have a fight there. Uh, and obviously these are traps. They're built. You know, I'm not just talking booby traps. All, uh, all kinds of traps. Um, and um, it, for Israel, it would be very difficult to go in there. And, you know, you might have the best soldiers and the best equipment, and you might use robotics to do this, and you might use dogs to do it. But you're still in a very confined space where you can't use your numerical advantage, where you can't move very quickly. Um, it is, uh, And that's what has been deliberately set up like this. Hamas wanted this war to happen, and they wanted them to come into, into Gaza City, and that's what's happening now. In closing, I see a lot of media outlets uh, treating the defeat of Hamas by Israel as essentially inevitable. Do you think it is inevitable? I, I'm very curious what, what your take on that is. Do, do you see the defeat of Hamas by Israel as inevitable in this war? Oh, defeat. Uh, right. Um, do I see defeat as inevitable? It Again, the I think the the, the military part of it, the, the, the capability, the capacity I have on the ground, I think is something that, that Israel kind of wrote. Israel is setting itself up for a long long war. They're not in there for a couple of weeks uh, or months. Some have gone as far as saying, you know, it could be years. Um, so in, in in this sort of uh, environment, you could eventually come to a, a situation where you kill nearly all of the fighting capability or the other ones will surrender. Um, so it could happen. But again, you're not eradicating the problem. You're not eradicating the idea of Hamas. You're not eradicating uh, the insurgency movement. I think that's impossible. It's just near impossible by military means. So, so will this become a, a quagmire then for Israel? It sounds like you're saying they're going to be in there for a long time. Well, Israel, the thing is, Israel is not in an expeditionary uh, sort of operation like we were, like the West was in Iraq or Afghanistan, where we withdrew and flew a thousand miles back home. They're right on their doorstep. Um, so they could decide to just move their tanks back, move their troops back, leave some forward operating bases, which are heavily fortified and leave Palestinians to themselves. Uh, because at the moment, I don't see a strategy. They're saying we don't want to reoccupy, but we want to keep a security presence. But we also don't want Hamas to remain. So, But we also not, don't necessarily want to have the Palestinian Authority there. 
Um, then they're saying we want an Arab coalition to run it, but the Arabs themselves don't know if they want to run it and how they want to run it, certainly not when the IDF is still there. So we don't have a, a real scenario for what happens after the war. And what is an after the war scenario? Because if Hamas is remains underground and uh, and remains there for an indefinite period of time, having tunnels where they can go in and out of their bunkers as they see please without the IDF being able to do anything, that can take, you know, it can take months and months and months. I think the key point here is that the Biden administration will enter into a very hot season of campaigning. And I don't think the Biden administration can afford having this war being hot ongoing in Gaza as they're going into into election season. So I think there is a ticking uh, that the clock is ticking eventually for the Americans to exert exert more more pressure. Well, hey, uh, Dr. Angelis Krieg, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, in closing, what do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation that we've been having here? And uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Andreas underscore Krieg. Um, what I want people to understand is that there is no military solution to this carnage. Um, and the carnage that's happening right now is counterproductive to Israel's security. So if you are interested in Israel's security, you should be interested in a ceasefire and a political uh, settlement to this problem. Thank you again, Dr. Andreas Craig. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Andreas Krieg. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.